All right, guys, I'm here with the incredible Marcus Miller, who I have been a massive fan of for so long. Obviously, you know who he is, one of the most influential and important bass players to have ever lived. And like, I was researching for this interview over the last couple of days, I've just said earlier, I was just a massive fan of Marcus's before. But when I started digging into like all of the stuff that you've played on is incredible. And just, I wish I could memorize these names, but there's so many, I've got them down here. Like you've played and recorded and performed with people like Michael Jackson, Beyonce, Herbie Hancock, Miles Davis, Mariah Carey, Eric Clapton, Wayne Shorter, McCoy Tyner, Frank Sinatra, George Benson, Aretha Franklin, Are You Kidding Me, Elton John, Shaka Khan, and I've just put, it just goes on. And I, I gave up after a while, I was like, it goes on and on and on <laughs> because there's so many on the list. And obviously you've worked as a musical director, you've worked as an arranger, you are an artist in your own right. Like. It, it's absolutely incredible, the breadth of, oh, and you've done like film scores and the full <laughs> thing. He's like, yeah, that was me. I've got something just to kick this off. This is a recording, Tom Brown, Brown Sugar. The track is Throwdown. You might remember this one. Okay, let me just sort of like play a bit of the groove just so the guys can hear what I'm talking about. Go, go to the trumpet solo. This is my man, Tom Brown. You're right there. Tom Brown. Woo! I looked. I looked at the date, and I was like, "You, you were 19." Okay, and you yeah. still sound like Mark. Like you still. Well, you can hear that there's no. Um, that's a passive bass. Yeah. Well, what I was. Still, yeah. You know, what I was going to ask you about is like, was that you know, like when people think about you know, you back in the day, it was definitely the jazz bass with the Sadowski right. preamp and like right. all of that. Was that recorded on that, or was that? Um, a it's the same bass? bass, but no, um, no preamp or anything. That's just plugging into the direct box. I got my first Fender in '75. Right before that, I had a Univox bass. That was my first bass. And it looked like B.B. King's guitar. Is that like one of the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Like it looked like a 335. Yeah. So I had that and I was just happy to have any bass. You know what I mean? Because I begged my my mom and dad for one. Got a jazz bass, Sunburst in 75, um, probably in 77, early 77. I was loading my car and put the amp in the trunk. I said, there's one more thing. I must be tripping. I got in the car and drove off and left the bass no. against the side of the other side of the car. Yeah. And that one disappeared. Mom took me to uh, 48th Street in New York. That's where you got your instruments from. It was just one street, you know, one block where all the music stores were. All the music yeah. stores were that, right? And so she got me another one, man. Left that one in the car about six months later <laughs> and got that one stolen in New York City, right? And so I figured, well, that's the end of my bass playing career, yeah. you know? And mom, she didn't tell my dad about the next one. You know, she took me again and got me one. That's 1977. That's the one that I have. I held on to that sucker. So, <laughs> so, so maybe it was actually sort of like, you know, maybe it, yeah, was so, actually, so maybe figured, it worked out. I figured it was meant to be, you know what I mean? But yeah. um, uh, that was the base that I used, man, for everything. You know, there was a big difference between um, L.A. studio musicians and New York studio musicians. Um, I mean, to people who live not in the States, 
it's just American, but it was a big difference. And the LA musicians, they had cars, they had um, cartage guys, you know what I mean, who yeah, would carry. Yeah. So, you know, my man Nathan East, when he go to a when he would go to a session, he had five bases. You know, uh, listen to the song. You know, figuring out which one to. Yeah, to play, yeah. but in New York, man, it's the city. You know, you can't drive around the city like when you're going from session to session. So you had to carry your gear on your back. So you would get um, a bass that was as versatile as you could get. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? So we all played Fenders, either precision or jazz bass. Will Lee, Neil Jason, uh, Francisco Santeno, Anthony Jackson. Yeah. These were the, you know, these were the New York studio bass players. Yeah. And we all played Fenders, you know what I mean? Because that was the one that you could get a, enough variety in the sound and it still sound, sounded classic. You got the bridge pickup, you got the front pickup, you well, got for the both jazz, combined. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then, and then with the precision, it just sounded right. It always sat in the track very well. Yeah. Other, you know, you bring another bass, the engineer goes, that sounds great. Do you have a Fender, you know? Is so, that what he was like? People just oh, like yeah. the engineers wanted that sound on the records. Yeah, because they knew that it sat right between the bass drum and the piano in a really nice way. You yeah. know what I mean? So, um, so my jazz bass was cool. You know what I mean? I could go do fusion gigs at night using my back pickup. Yeah. And I could do uh, funk gigs, you know, just by changing the pickups or where I plucked the string. So uh, it's a really versatile bass. In terms of having my sound, I'll tell you, man, I uh, played fretless bass exclusively, like almost exclusively at from 19, you know, like 18, 19 years old. Really? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, if I had a session where I needed to play a fretted bass was no problem, but in terms of stuff that I was doing, experimenting with and practicing on, it was all fretless. I still play on the frets, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah. a fretless guy would do. And, um, but I'll tell you, um, I was a real, um, you know, I was a real fan of a, uh, a few bass players. There was, of course, James Jameson. I didn't know it was James Jameson at the time because yeah. Motown didn't list the names of the musicians, right? So yeah. I thought it was, I thought it was this guy. <laughs> Jermaine Jackson, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? Because, yeah, yeah. you know, he was the bass player in the band. Yeah. So I figured that was him on the records, you know. Very inspiring because he was only 14. I was, you know, I was 12, you know, something like that. So yeah. I was like, oh, I got to get it together because this dude is bad, you know. And I uh, uh, later on realized that was James Jamerson. And everybody played bass like that at the time, early 70s. It was thick, you know, stacks. It was Motown. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? It was just what bass sounded like. And that's what bass had sounded like for 15, 20 years. Yeah. Because right? it was, it's actually quite a young instrument if you think about yeah. it, isn't it? Mid 50s. Not, yeah, exactly. So, but then, you know, we heard Larry Graham. And he's like, he blew everybody's mind. First of all, he said, what is that? What is that sound? You know, is that a guitar that's detuned or what is that? Can you remember the, where you were the first time you heard Larry Graham? Yeah, it was, um, you know, um, and anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, whoa, You've whoa, what is that? What is that? E, yeah. What is that, man? What is that? And we were at a talent show because you know that was the thing you did back in New York. I'm from an area called Jamaica Queens. Yeah, they used to have talent shows, and all the young bands would play. You know, you have like 20 minutes, and um, a bass player in one of the bands was playing song that went like. <laughs> And my, my boys were like, can you do that? And I'm like, yeah, man, I can do that. I went home, man. I was like, okay, what, how does that work? And I didn't leave my room until, until I could at least get a basic sound. How old were you then? 14, 13, 14, yeah. you know. But it was just so, like, especially for a young ear, yeah. you know what I mean? It was not subtle. 
it was like, you know, it was, and it was cool. And so we all got into that. And then, um, and then we heard Stanley, at least I heard Stanley Clark, right? Who had all these jazz chops, but he still was incorporating this stuff yeah. that was now available to a bass guitar. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. And that blew my mind. And I spent a lot of time playing like him. A lot of time. Like I would learn his solos note for note. And if I'm on a little gig and it's time for a bass solo, I would play that solo. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. Regardless yeah. of the key, you know? <laughs> I switch it back to E and play my Stanley Clark solo and then go back to B flat or whatever key we were in, you know? And um, and then somebody said, hey, man, you're a bass player, man. You need to listen to this guy, Jaco Pastorius, you know? So I bought the record, man, and, you know, said, okay. The first song you heard was Donna Lee, right? Which is a bebop tune, but it didn't have any piano. It was just Jaco and a percussionist, Donna Lee. Yeah, right? yeah. So I didn't have any reference. I couldn't hear what key it was. And I said, this dude's just playing any random notes yeah. he wants to, right? Then enrolled in the jazz class in high school. And here we are playing Don Lee. I said, this doesn't sound like anything like what Jocko's playing. What is he doing? Went home, got to the piano and played the chord changes to Don Lee and heard actually what he was doing against those chord changes. And that was, okay, I'm in, I'm 100% in. And I went, I was traveling two and a half hours to Staten Island from Queens to do bebop gigs. I said, I could always learn the solos, but I never knew why they were playing the notes they were playing, yeah, right? Yeah. So I was just like, somebody said, you need to learn jazz. These guys come from a jazz background. And then they went funky and they incorporated it yeah. to create the fusion that I was loving at the time. Yeah, well, so. what, yeah, like well, something I really wanted to ask you actually is like your career, has, there's like two paths to it. Like there's other paths, like the, you know, the sort of like film stuff that you've done and obviously the arrange and stuff like that. But there's, if I look at it, it's sort of like, there's a lot of really like monstrously awesome pop stuff that you've done, you know, like Luther jumps to mind for me and, you know, mm. and all of that stuff. But then there's also like this jazz thing that has always been throughout all of your career as well. Mm -hmm. um, like obviously you started playing with Miles in, was it 81? Mm -hmm. When you were like 20 or 21 years old. We'll talk about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, even when you look at your band now, like it's, it's, it's heavy jazz plays, you know. So for you, when did you start getting into jazz as a kid? I'm in high school and there's two incredible drummers in my class. It was the art school in New York City, the LaGuardia School. And there was Omar Hakim over here, and there was Kenny Washington over here. And these two, bad. And these two were the, the, the greatest drummers I've ever heard. Yeah. And if you hear Omar today, that's exactly what he sounded like in high school, really? at least wow. to my ears. Yeah. You know what I mean? I was, yeah, yeah, I was yeah. 13, 14, but he was incredible. Kenny was incredible. Omar was super contemporary. Kenny, you know, he was, 14 but he talked like he was 55 you know he talked like an old jazz guy you guys ain't swinging you know what i mean <laughs> and so i would hang out with omar we got in a band together but i'd also hang out with kenny yeah. and kenny said you need to learn jazz and i said why he said because all the best musicians play jazz that's how teenagers talk you know what yeah. i mean all the best musicians play jazz and that was enough reason for me so what do i have to do he said come to my house where do you live in staten island staten island that's a half hour on the bus an hour on the train hour on the ferry oh my and then a half hour on the bus to get to staten island yeah but every weekend man i would i would make the trek out to kenny's house and he had three thousand lps that his father had wow. started the collection and he started me man he played louis armstrong and he played me every every version of jazz up until what was happening in 1974 chicoria and return to forever took me through the whole path i would go every every weekend 
And were you listening? Obviously, you were listening. Were you playing that stuff? Were you trying to learn it? He had a jazz. Yeah. His dad had a jazz workshop, so I was starting to play. You know what I mean? Oh, amazing! And you know, yeah. I, I had to avoid going in the middle of the jazz songs. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> but I started really learning the language, man. And I'll tell you, it opened me up. First of yeah. all, you got to know harmony. You know, you don't. You can't get away with not knowing harmony. Um, I I told Kenny, hey man, my my dad's cousin played jazz. He played with. Uh, some big people. Kenny said, who's your cousin? I said, Winton Kelly. He goes, yeah. <laughs> I said, is he, is he good? I didn't know. I, you know is he, is yeah. he, he starts pulling LPs, Miles yeah. Davis, West Montgomery. You know what I mean? So I realized I already have a connection to this music. Yeah. You know? And I started learning it, man. And so, like you said, I was on two paths. Omar, you know, I met all these cool guys in Jamaica, Queens, you know, yeah. Tom Brown being one of them. I met all these bad cats. So I'm in a contemporary mode there. By the way, these cats like Tom Brown were incredible jazz players too. Yeah, yeah. And then I was playing traditional, traditional stuff with Kenny Washington. So I always kind of take my story back to those two guys that I met in high school. Was there ever a point where you felt pulled in two different directions at once in your younger years where you're like, am I going to go this traditional route or am I going to move more into the contemporary? Or did it just... It was, was New it York City, man. Thing? It was New York City. So I would go do uh, a funk gig over here and then the next night I'm playing with a jazz trio, you know what I mean? With yeah. A guy who played with Charlie Parker, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then we do fusion gigs where we, with the Brecker brothers, where we combine all of it, you know? So it was very, um, and then I was playing in African bands, Latin bands, reggae bands, you know, Caribbean bands, you know what yeah. I mean? It's New York City. So uh, I got a very wide um, start and nobody ever demanded that you make a choice, you know? Yeah. If you come from another place, if you come from New Orleans or you come from the Bay Area, you come from Minneapolis, you know, there's one sound, you know what I mean? New York, there was not one sound in New York. It was a mix and pop. So I'm a product of that environment, you know? And it's crazy now, because I started playing the bass at 13. <laughs> but, Is that when you started playing when you were 13? Yeah. yeah, I was playing clarinet. You know, my dad's a piano player. So yeah. I, I grew up piano on the organ, and he played primarily in church and for weddings, and you know, like like a great local musician, working musician did. Yeah. So I was always goofing around on the piano, you know what I mean? But um, New York City school system offered trumpet, clarinet, or drums. And of course, everyone wanted to play the drums, but my father said, not in this apartment, you know? <laughs> and I'd already, like, you know, in, in, at eight years old, they offered us this little wooden thing called a recorder. You know what I mean? Yeah, so my dad said, yeah. well, you already played, you already played hey, dude, the recorder. That's what, that's what I played, yeah, okay, recorder, yeah. yeah. He said, you already played the recorder. Why don't you just stay with the wind instrument and Got play it. the clarinet? And I already love music, so I figured I'm not into the clarinet that much, but it's music, so. I got into it, and that's the instrument that I stayed with all the way through college, you know, in school. In but, school, yeah. you know, I heard, I heard the Jackson 5, you know, and I, I got deep into soul music. Clarinet wasn't really appropriate for that style, you know. Moved yeah. over to saxophone for a while. But, man, I heard that bass, man. A friend of mine got a bass for Christmas who lived in the same building as I did. His name was Brian Harris, and Brian and I were best friends. And I'm sure Brian's mom got sick of me being over there because I was just playing his bass, man. I, I heard that sound and it, yeah. it was the sound that was at the center of music at that time. You know, if you listen to an old Motown record or Stax record, Isaac Hayes or any of those records, the drums, it just sounds like a drum set like this. Yeah. It's just another instrument. You know, it wasn't like the bass drum like you hear today, like in, in EDM. It was just, yeah. it's just a knock, you know, and the real soul of the track, the bottom of the track was the bass, the bass guitar. You know, and so I was like, man, this is right in the center, man. I would love to do this. And like I said, I, I already been a fan yeah. of the music. Convinced my mom to get me that that Univox bass that looked like BB King's guitar, you know. And I was on my way. So that's how I got into it. 
you know, and um, so I had two parallel paths. I played the clarinet classical. I auditioned for high school with yeah. Mozart's clarinet concerto. Really? Were you doing that like full classical? Yeah. Afro, platform shoes, bell bottoms, and the clarinet. <laughs> that was me. And, um, but in the streets, I'm playing the bass, you know Got what it. I mean? And so when um, I became 17, 18, um, producers in New York were looking for bass players who could read but didn't sound like they were reading, mm. you know? And you'd obviously got, because you come from a reading so background, so, because yeah. of the clarinet. Right, but I'm also, from, I'm from, also from the hood, you know what I mean? Yeah, so I'm, yeah. uh, I'm playing like, okay, yeah, I got it. I'm not going to play that. <laughs> you know, I'm going to play something else yeah, that yeah, works. Yeah. I understand what you, what you, you know, the feeling of what you want, you know? Yeah. And so that was really valuable back then. Will Lee could read, Anthony Jackson reads incredibly, you know, Neil Jason, Francisco Centeno. Most of the New York bass players who were working, they worked because they played a street instrument but they could read music and that was really valuable. Has that been, was that an incredibly important thing for you to begin with in your career, reading? It, you know, it just made things easier. You know what I mean? Studio time was expensive. Nobody had time to uh, wait for you to figure it out. You know what I mean? No, no one had time to show you stuff. Certainly no one was sending you a track a week earlier, you mm, know, so you could yeah. <laughs> practice your little licks that you're going to play in. No, man, we, yeah. we got to go. The, the, the arranger just wrote this thing out 15 minutes ago, you know? You've got to be Let's on go. the yeah. So you come in, man, they say, hey, man, we need to be done with this gentleman in 20 minutes. You know what I mean? We, we hit it. One more, uh, make a, a couple of adjustments, do it again. Thank you, gentlemen. And you go to your next one that you have in an hour. You know what I mean? And that became the studio life. I started that around 17, 18 years old and um, did it for maybe 20 years, you know? And exploded on the scene like, like shortly afterwards, right? Like another track that I want to play everybody, um, is, uh, is is this track like for me maybe the best baseline of all time? For me, I'm just like, and I would love to know, like, I'm sure that this is done on your the 77 with the I think that you had the preamp okay. in on this. So let's definitely talk about the sound there because I'm sure that everybody's seen that bass and they're like, what, like when did that happen? Mm -hmm. Like the story of that and why did you start using active circuitry? But also I would love to know like about this 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 date when you were in the studio. Um, with Luther, the tune is obviously never too much. It's just, oh, mm -hmm. it's crushing. I'm like, what song is he talking about? Oh, dude, dude, <laughs> dude. Intro too, man. Oh, yeah, I, I love like, the long intros, like, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
like just just incredible like i've got so many questions about this so was that line written out when you got in the studio this is the line that you are going to play yeah nat adley jr uh grew up with luther he was luther's accompanist yeah since they were teenagers all through luther's career he's the nephew of cannonball adley right yeah and he um uh luther had written the song and nat had arranged it so when i got in every note was written out you know but um it was really you personalize it with the articulation you know like um uh like the pops this right here yeah, like that's that, way behind like the beat that, you know it's so like i try and play that a bit like yeah you know the, like that bit there and that's um, from the jazz you know what i mean because when you're playing um It's got that skip to it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So when I heard the playback, I go, ooh, that's a little far back, you know? I said, Luther, are you okay? I can move. He said, no, leave it just like that. You You wanted, is that where you heard it? Where you were, ooh. I said, ooh, that's a little too far, you know what I mean? But it it had a thing. And Luther said, no, that's got a thing. Got it. So leave it. And then, you know, Nat had a I was like that don't make no sense you know? yeah like it does that is it the sex right, right that's the one that you played the first time that's the main one but and then the second every, one yeah, is like, like yeah so I was like I was like I said I changed to I went that oh, made more sense to me right that made more there. sense and I said yeah no no man like like that, that F shot don't mean nothing, man. Like, they played the way it is. I said, okay. Because they were very, uh, I don't want to So you didn't get the F sharp in there? No, man. No. <laughs> nah, he said, go back to the. I said, I'm going. All right. But you yeah. know, the way they did music, Nat and Luther, um, it was very, it had a lot of character and stuff that didn't seem like it was going to make sense when we were recording it. By the time you heard all the you know, strings and everything, and it With was just like, mix, and I yeah. learned not to question that you know yeah a lot of people think that i wrote that because luther and i began to write shortly after that we wrote a lot of music together but this was just me coming in and do it with the ass and just trying to put some funk on it you know what i mean with with attitude yeah yeah dude there was a lot of attitude there and can you tell the story about the uh <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> yeah you gotta tell the story yeah, about yeah yeah uh i don't know man you know when you when you're 19 years old you know you, you just got energy you know so <laughs> we're supposed to go Three, four. And so Nat's counting it off. Two, three, I went. <laughs> and Nat looked at me like. <laughs> but but that got, that made it. You know what I mean? That, that made the record. And uh, yeah. it kind of lets everybody know what's getting ready to happen too. Oh dude, you know? it's, it's, it's absolutely killing. Th- thank you from the, all of the bass players, you know, <laughs> in all of the world that have listened to that and just thought, holy crap this is maybe the best thing i've ever heard in my life you know luther and i you know i was like his little brother you know we started in a roberta flax band roberta flax at the time had the number one song in the entire world called first time ever i saw your face mm, yeah. and we would travel with her he sang background i played the bass with roberta and we were on the road all the time you know what i mean he was making me listen to singers which i didn't really ever pay attention to i was you know, I was a musician, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. but he made me listen to Dion Warwick, Aretha Franklin, Donny Hathaway. And he sat down with me, played me the music 
and broke it down the same way like a jazz piano player would break down harmony to you. Like, look here, you know, flat nine is just a half step above the five, blah, 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 blah. Luther was saying, listen to Dion. She uses her head voice and she doesn't use vibrato until the chord change, right? Mixed yeah, voice. So he here. was really, really analytical. He was a it, musician yeah. whose instrument was his voice. You know what I mean? And if you, if you were to listen to a, a video of 60 concerts that he'd done in a year, the consistency was incredible. Because he knew exactly what he was doing. Because he knew doing what he was doing. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't yeah, accidental yeah. and it wasn't just instinctive. He knew, he knew what he was doing. So anyway, uh, you know, uh, once he told, told me that and taught me that stuff, I could hear. And so when he started doing records, not on Never Too Much, but I began to start producing with him. Mm. And I could sit at the control room while he's at the mic. And yeah. I could say, uh, you might want to try that again because I know you're not going to like, I know what you're going for. You know, I could be like his mirror yeah. on the other side of the glass. You, you were know? working with it like that closely. That I was using the lessons he taught like, me, you know what I mean? To, yeah. to help him get what he needed faster. Wow, know? that's so. amazing. And on, on that album, it was the, the 77 jazz bass, But right? it's still passive. Still it's passive. still passive at this time. It was that Ampeg um, B15, you know? That was an Ampeg B15 yeah. passive bass. When did the, when did the, so, okay, okay. I've got another one for you. By the way, this is great fun. I love this. Just playing tracks and the guy's right there. How freaking cool is this? Okay. Okay, next up. Here we go. You'll know this one. We don't want to give it away. Look how happy Dave Sanborn is that he's like, this is the shit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that is the bass, isn't it? Yeah. Yes. And this is your, you wrote this track, right? Yeah. It was supposed to be, it was supposed to be uh, the first song on my album that I was yeah. intending to make, you know? So just, just such an incredible bass line. Um, <laughs> and there's this weird thing. So there's two things I want to talk about, uh, specifically about this track. I'd love to know the story about, you know, going to Roger Sadowski and, and, and what he did with your instrument. But also, there's this, there's that little, what's that? It's, it's like, I can't play this, so it's a... Um, like, how do you do that? That's it. That's it yeah. How are you doing? Are you using your index and middle? Because I was watching this last week, I was like, mm, I'm going to get this down. And, and it seemed different when you phrased it. Oh, oh yeah. Weiss band when I was um, oh, so 17 good. years old and I was watching his snare drum. You know the stuff that you do in between the back beats? Yeah, yeah. You know, little double things. And I said, man, I could do that. You know what I mean? And um, so it was just trying to... Uh, 
and and a lot of his and a lot of people thought it was triplets sitting on yeah it's actually that's, that's you're just going, it's all thumb and index right um can't do that dan help me out dan <laughs> yeah, dan. yeah i'm going that's right yeah yeah so this yeah and then i just started started seeing guys you going using two fingers and stuff i said oh that's nice too you know what i mean so that's the one thing about the whole new age with the videos that um everybody can see exactly how you do it <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah so what happens is that um you know like 20 30 years ago people were coming up with some incredible things thinking that they were doing what i did because they couldn't see it they just listened to and it using their ears yeah, you know what mean? and they come up with some other stuff and then i said "Ooh, never thought about that you know and, I'm <laughs> and it's just evolving you know yeah, what I mean? yeah now people just see what it is okay i got it you know yeah it's a lot quicker now isn't it and, and with that base like what when did you go to roger sadowski and say hey you know like with a circuit and what was that what was the what, were other people doing it was it yeah. a thing that was going down in new york at the time well uh roger was a started off as a, a base tech you know what i mean you take him yeah. to do your uh your frets you know what i mean and just set your bass up and uh i got introduced to him by a guitar player named craig snyder he said you know He's my guy, Roger Sadowski. So I was taking my bass to Roger regularly. You know, at one point he put mandolin frets All in right. my bass instead of uh, jumbo frets. Yeah, I don't remember if if it made the bass sound any different, but it sounded cool <laughs> as hell. The, the idea of it sounded cool, right? Yeah. yeah. And um, one day Roger said, "Hey man, I'm putting preamps in some of the guys' basses because New York, everything's going so fast. Usually you didn't even use an amp in New York. Just oh, so you're just going direct." We didn't have time for the bass player to have an amp. Guitar players had an amp, you yeah. know, on these sessions. But the bass player, you just plugged in. So you really didn't have a lot of control over your sound. You couldn't really shape it. So he's saying, look. So the engineer was kind of like. Yeah, you're yeah. at the mercy yeah. of the engineer. So Rogers, I'm putting these preamps in the bass. You know, maybe I should put one in yours. I was like, you know, I'm 20 years old. Yeah, put it in. Let's see what it does, you know. <laughs> yeah. And um, he said, you know what? I've said it at, Marcus. I've said it at, you know full volume on both pickups and i have this here and i have that there i said okay 20 years old never touch those settings ever again we just you like know? these are the settings this, this is what gonna, it, yeah, this yeah. is the settings you know yeah. because i wasn't really um that tuned into the options on the bass you know i knew any sound i wanted i just moved my hands around you know what i mean i just like played uh oh, oh yeah oh, i went it's all yeah. here, right? Yeah. So I didn't really um, fool around with the preamp that much. I just left it like it was. But I remember going, man, I kind of like the way that thing is sounding. You know, I think the first time I really noticed it was when I uh, played on a Miles Davis record. It was the first time I played with Miles. And, um, you know, I think I just had the preamp put in. And uh, we did a session. The album's called The Man with the Horn. And yeah. the engineer, man, it was Columbia Studios, like legendary studios. And man, he had that bass pumping, man. I'm going, ooh, that thing sounds good, you know? And so I decided to keep it. What I didn't realize at the time for many years is that the preamp basically boosts the lows and the highs, right? Doesn't touch the mids, which essentially makes the mids sound like they're scooped out. You right? get the smiley face thing, yeah. You get the smiley face thing. 
And what that does is it makes finger style much more challenging. Mm. Like, um, like I could, I, I was having trouble getting the bass to pop out, you know, like a Bernard the, Edwards, mix, you know, like yeah. Bernard Edwards bass, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. It's getting finger styles having a hard time. And I realized that's why subconsciously I started playing with my thumb on a lot of stuff that really didn't even necessarily require thumb playing. Because you really wanted it to made come it, through it, in it, the made mix. It, it made it come through. Plus I was doing jingles, right? Yeah. Music for commercials where the TV speaker is that big. You know what I mean? Back in the day. Yeah. So if you played with fingerstyle, half the time people couldn't hear the bass anyway. But if I play like a, a commercial for diapers and I'm like... <laughs> Ooh, Johnny just fell! <laughs> and, and it worked. It was like clear. And, and so I found myself falling into this thing. You know, I still played uh, fingerstyle yeah. a lot. But when I needed the bass to kind of be prominent, I ended up defaulting to that. And That's I developed a lot of subtlety. You know, it wasn't like, it was like, you know, like a. It's just gentle and I'm in the studio, so I'm not trying to play with live energy and the sound will be big and, you know. So a, a lot of it comes from just um, unconscious reaction to that's your a, circumstance. Yeah, that's, you know? that's amazing actually, because it answers one of my questions, because, well, not one of my questions, but something that, I've, um, that I think is really unique about your approach to when you play slap bass is that it doesn't always, it's like sometimes you're just playing the bass line and yeah, you're using your thumb, but it's not, it's not sort of like all of the time. There's actually, it's, it's just, it's like, I guess the easiest way to explain is, you know, some fretless players, you can hear them play and it, it, it's not noticeable straight away that it is a fretless. Right. They're just playing a bass and it happens to be a fretless. You right. were just using your thumb to play the bass line. It's right. not like you particularly wanted to play a slight bass line. Right. And I think that that's really something that you that's unique. Yes, you can play crazy and do mm -hmm. all of that stuff, but also you just played really fantastic bass lines and happened to use your thumb for it. Yeah, and it was in the 80s, right? When I first started with this and it was, every instrument was bright. It was yeah. a DX7, you know, the Yamaha DX7. Yeah, DX7. And it was yeah, yeah, drum machines yeah. that were really like, uh, you know, had a harshness to them, you know, gated reverbs on everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, man, you're in there like. <laughs> you're just you know, lost. Yeah. And so, man, like I was doing dance records and they were using synth bass, big fat synth bass. And then the producer would go, Marcus, I just need you to double the bass line. Okay, I'll be back, you know? And I'm like, like. I played fingerstyle, you wouldn't even have known that I was doubling the bass. The bass is even there. Yeah. So it was just like a reaction to what worked for the music. Yeah. Know? I was listening to uh, you playing with Miles yesterday, actually. And the, re the reason I'm mentioning it, I, I would do want to talk about Miles, but it's the DX7. When you talk about the DX7, like the, the intro, and there's this chord, and <laughs> that happens, and I was like, that's the DX7. Yeah. <laughs> but when did the when did the uh, when did the call come from Miles? And like, where were you? <laughs> like, hey, you know, it's I was Miles Davis. Like, what happened? Yeah. Um, I'll tell you, um, there was a contractor, you know, a guy whose job was to find the musicians for a session, you know, 
and Gene Bianco was his name, and Gene was this Italian. Marcus, listen, I got a gig for you. It's Miles Davis. You got to take this one, Marcus. Okay, these are your roots, man. I'm like, Gene, you don't need to sell me on Miles Davis. <laughs> what are you doing? You know, I show up to the, the studio, and uh, the musicians, everybody's excited. It's Miles, and Miles never showed up. You know what I mean? But it put me on notice that there's a possibility that this dude is going to come back to life because he had been in retirement for five, six years. Really? Wow. From when I was 16 to now I'm 21 or 20, mm. you know what I mean? So I didn't know if he was alive. I didn't know if he's, certainly didn't know if he's going to play again. But all of a sudden, there's a rumor that Miles Oh, so this was sort of like back. a big resurgence. It was like a, a thing. Well, it was just yeah. a little whisper, you know yeah. what I mean? And a couple of people said, man, I saw Miles at a club, man. He's just standing in the back. Really, Miles Davis? year later, I'm doing a session for a singing group. I don't remember the group. But the receptionist handed me a note that says, call Miles Davis. <laughs> this is certainly Poojie Bell just playing a joke on me. You know what I mean? But I wasn't going to take a chance. So I called the number back and it was Miles. And he said, hey, man, can you be at Columbia Studios? I said, what? He said, in an hour. I said, yeah. You know, I said, you going to be there? Because, you know, from the thing that happened the year before, he said, yeah. I'm going to be there. You're going to be there. And I said, ooh, this really is mine. You know? <laughs> and I, uh, you know, I tell this story all the time, but I uh, finished my, my date for the singing group and walked three blocks to Columbia Studios because that's what New York was like. You just walk yeah. up and down Broadway all day, you know, going to different studios. Walked over to Columbia, but I was early because I was already in the area and just, you know, fooling around on the piano. And then he walks in, man, and it's Miles Davis. And this is like... You know, it's really hard to describe. First of all, I was looking up here in the sky for him. Well, didn't you know a freaking kid as well? Like you were 21, right? Yeah, it's almost better that you're 21 because, you know, <laughs> you don't know. You yeah, know, yeah, you know, 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 yeah, yeah. I'll yeah, say, hey, Miles, know. nice to meet you, man. My, my cousin played with you, man, Winton Kelly, man. Oh, yeah. Anyway, let's do it. <laughs> he didn't care that much <laughs> yeah, about yeah. that. This is how the song goes, and he showed me two notes, and I'm going, is that it? He goes, yeah, you got a problem? I said, I ain't got no problem. I like F sharp and G, you know? And uh, the rest of the band came in. And we just started recording, you know, and um, we only played a short time and he stopped us and he said to me, that's all you're going to do? Play F sharp and G? I go, oh, you, you told me, never mind, nope, I got it. And next take, man, I played a whole lot more than F sharp and G. Yeah. And he was like, what are you doing? Just play F sharp and G, then shut up, man. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is clearly an initiation, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, so yeah, I said, yeah. okay, I closed my eyes and just played what I thought would work, you know? And he stopped the band. He said, y'all play like a bunch of sissies. And he walked out of the studio, you know? But I was sitting at the door next to the exit door, so he had to walk past me. And when he passed me, he goes, just gave me a wink, you know what I mean? I'm just messing with you, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And he said, come by my house tomorrow, you know? And the next day I went by his house in the afternoon, man, and, and he was listening to the things that we recorded the day before, man. And, just sat there, man, in the house and with Miles Davis listened to him, man. It was incredible, you know. And then I got out of, uh, left his house and got in a taxi cab. No, I got in my car to drive home. And I turned on the radio and it was Miles Davis, Someday My Prince Will Come, which is a song that has my cousin playing piano. Wow. With Miles, you know, and I just went, ooh. <laughs> this is yeah, kind of fantastic. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? So. You know, it it was incredible. I mean, I tell you, man, um, the guys that you get introduced to, whose music you get introduced to when you're 
12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. That stuff has a whole different meaning to you than music that you get introduced before or after. Mm. You know what mm. I mean? So for me, Herbie Hancock, Stevie Wonder, Miles Davis, um, Stanley Clark and Jocko Pastores, George Benson, you know, Freddie Hubbard. Course, These yeah. guys are like, it's another level for me. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I found myself playing with all of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Very, not long after I was <laughs> sitting in my bedroom learning licks off their records, you know what I mean? Yeah. Two, three years later, man, I'm playing on Grover Washington Jr.'s record. I was just playing the Mr. Magic in my bedroom, which seemed like a few months ago, yeah. you know? Yeah. So it was a really special time. But luckily, I was so young, I didn't trip on it. You know what I mean? I just, yeah. yeah. You know. Was there, was there ever a time? Was there ever a time where... I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and we were talking about you know, war stories from the road, like, you know, that for me, it was the time I auditioned for a band. The musical director was notorious in the UK for being like just a monster. Mm -hmm. he, he's actually throwing a bass player's um, a few weeks earlier to, to me audition through a bass player's uh, bass into the streets. He was like notorious for it. I didn't know this. I turned up. I had no, none of the skills that, that I needed to mm -hmm. be on that audition. And it was brutal. You know, mm -hmm. it's brutal. And all of the rest of the band are there. And he's like, what are you even doing here? Mm. And I was like, I'm mm. so sorry. And mm. he's like, freaking get out. Mm. So I like, picked my bass up and I got in the car and I remember driving home and like, and I didn't cry, but I was like, like near to it. Mm -hmm. You know, I was near to it. I was only probably like 19 or 20 at the time. Mm -hmm. And like, I ultimately got the gig because they couldn't take, it was to do a, uh, I was working on a cruise ship right. and they had to send me because if they didn't send me, all of the rest of the band were going to be out of work. So, I, so it was kind of like, that was my school. Mm -hmm. um, but have, did like, did you have any experiences in your past that you can remember that were just like super painful? Because I think sometimes for musicians like that are coming up, they are mm -hmm. going to get themselves into situations where they're, they're going to get an ass kicking. Like, it's just that it's kind of sort mm -hmm. of like, it's going to happen. It's just, right. you know, like, did, what happened to you? Like, have you got any war stories from the past that jump out? Uh, the, the most brutal stuff I got was from other bass players in my neighborhood when we were very young. You know what I mean? Because we, yeah. you know, we're young boys and it's all competitive. You know what I mean? Yeah. And they'd be like, you know, uh, I remember doing a gig at a talent show and I had this bass and I had an amp and I was in my bedroom getting the perfect sound, which is really beautiful and well, you know. And I said, that's what I'm going to I'm going to use the sound perfect, not realizing that that sound's not going to work. It's too dark. Got it. In, 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 a, in a high school auditorium. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I'm playing, man, and, you know, the guy, man, we couldn't hear a note you were playing, man. And everybody knows, man, when you're in a, a situation like that, you got to turn up to treble, you know. <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, young people are honest and beautiful, yeah, yeah, you know what yeah, I mean? So brutal, I was like, yeah. I mean, you know, it was, it was like disappointed that people couldn't hear us playing, but it yeah. wasn't like a devastating thing. I said, turn up the treble. I would never thought that treble was important on a bass. Yeah, yeah. Right? You know, you're 13 years old, man. So um, stuff like that, you know, we were competitive, but we were all used to taking hits, you know what I mean? That's how yeah. we, we were playing sports and then we were was playing Was that music. part of like the learning process for you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I realized it's not necessarily treble because then I went the other way. And everything was tick, 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 you know what I mean? Got but you yeah, find yeah. that there's frequencies in the upper mids that will help you get clarity, you know what I mean? And you learn that stuff. Um, I was I was reading very well, but I got into this one big band situation where the arranger decided to write out all the notes of the walking bass and no chord yeah. changes. 
you know, no, it's just, it's just, just the notes. All, yeah, all and, quarter notes, yeah. And I was, you know, quarter notes with five measure lines, you know, yeah, yeah. and it was, I still think it was unnecessary, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I was like a very confident kid. I'm like, this is stupid, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't, I don't care, yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah, Look, yeah. yeah, I can figure out how to read this, but why? It doesn't even sound good when you play the right notes. It's yeah. a piano player who thinks that's what walking bass should sound like, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I never really... Um, you know, I found that I found that the most most of the people who were really mean, you know, were mean because they were bitter because stuff hadn't worked out for them, God, and now yeah. they found themselves in this situation and they're going to wield the power, yeah, uh, yeah, to make other people pay for what they went through. You yeah, know what I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. Like Miles sense. went through a lot of stuff with Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker was he? What well, he was hard on Miles with it? Yeah, he was hard on Miles, hard on Max Roach, who played drums with them. You know, it didn't pay him sometimes and. You know, we play two blistering choruses, then leave and leave those guys up there. Miles had to play 20 choruses waiting for Bird to show back up. You yeah. know what I mean? So Miles made everybody else pay. I was going to say. He like, passed it. He paid it forward. Yeah. You know what, what was mean? it like? Like, was Miles hard on his band? And, and what did you learn through that? The he, good, the bad and the ugly? Yeah, he was more. Uh, he wasn't hard on the band. He was just giving minimal direction. You know, right. So okay. if you walked in there going, Miles is going to tell me what to do and I can't wait. You know, you're going to be in trouble. Because he would just go, or he played something on the piano, a couple of chords, and you better start playing, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was no problem for me because I always had bass lines ready to go, you know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah. so, uh, but if you were the kind who was saying, Miles, what chord should I play there? You go, man, play whatever, you know? And everybody who worked with him had to come to that realization, you know? He, he, he brought you here, not to sound like the guy who played in his band 10 years ago. He brought you here to see what you got, what you mm -hmm. got. So if you have something, you could do pretty good, you know? But then in my neighborhood, before I played with Miles, there were all these wannabe Mileses, all these guys who were trying to be like an enigma and trying to give you directions that contradict each other. You know what I mean? Oh, got it. So they were kind of so you know, like trying to take play, on play, that. I want yeah, the bass yeah. drum in front of the beat and the snare drum behind the beat. You know, shut up, man. I'm, I'm 13, but I already know <laughs> music. You know, my dad was a musician. I, you know, I'm keyed in. So, yeah. or, or did you ever have a, a garage band, like a neighborhood band? Yeah, yeah. And, you're dragon. No, you're Russian. And I'm yeah. the youngest guy in the band. I'm like, uh, you're both right. Okay, you are dragon <laughs> and you are Russian. Okay, yeah, yeah. let's get this together, guys. You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. And I quickly became like the, you know, the guy that they'd say, okay, ask Marcus. You know, the little kid over there. You know, he's not gonna say anything, but if you ask him, he'll straighten this all out. You know? talk about your the some of your solo stuff that you've done as well because i think that that's obviously an incredible um, part of your career and what i wanted to kick it off with is just actually talk about your composition process i've got a track to play that and like all of these tracks i'll play uh, like demonstrate like multiple things about your playing um and but the one I guess sort of like what I wanted to, uh, it's a memory I wanted to call upon that I was actually at Manchester Bass Day when you played at Manchester Bass Day. And um, and I can remember looking at the, you know, looking at the, uh, who was on that day. And you're one, I'm like, whoa, Marcus Miller. I'm like, well, I wonder who, what he's going to do. I wonder who he's going to play with. And I asked somebody and they were like, oh, he's playing with a drummer. I was like, huh, <laughs> I wonder what he's going to do for like a, an hour, just a drummer. <laughs> so I, I was there, you know, and you guys came on stage and you played all of your tracks 
and you played all of the melodies and it blew my mind. I was like, holy shit. I was like, he can play all of the bass lines and he can play all of the melodies and you were doing it at the same time. And it always, at that point, I was like, oh, I wonder if he composes like that and then breaks things out into different sections. So I wanted to ask you about your composition process, but just to sort of like give us a little bit of inspiration, um, I wanted to play Scoop because I think it's, it's just such a great track. Let's just listen to a few seconds of this, or maybe a few, more than a few seconds. Mm -hmm. something like that like what is your composition process does it change between different tracks have you got a specific process that you stick to what's the deal man I, I wrote i wrote my first piece of music when i was 16 years old and so you got to change your process or else you can start, yeah, yeah, start yeah. writing the same song over and over again <laughs> you know um song like that clearly came from the baseline you know i was in a hotel and it was like I gotta remember that. I gotta remember that, you know? <laughs> and then um, just developed it. But that's for like bass songs, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I'm writing a song like a, for an R&B thing or a jazz thing or something that's not centered around the bass, I usually start from the piano, you know what I mean? Right, I got it. And uh, because the piano has everything. Piano has the bass, it has the harmony, it has melody, and it has rhythm. All the elements of music, mm. you know what I mean? So you can do that. So sometimes it's at the piano, Sometimes it's at the bass. You can clearly tell which ones are written um, the around the bass. You yeah. know what I mean? Like power. Of course, yeah. That, that, that Dude, didn't come from the piano. What the? This thing here, this has been haunting me for like this. Yeah. Don't play it perfect. Don't do that. How do you? Well, you, like, you do this. I'm like, gonna five string. I was trying to do that. Oh, yeah, oh, that's right. It's a five string. That's why. That's why. That's right. You have to do that. Yeah. yeah. Like, when did you uh, start using that the double thumb thing? Because it's not something when I listened to your earlier stuff, it wasn't there, and then suddenly I've been doing it for fun. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, just for fun. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. if I need an effect. But then um, Victor was using it like as a regular part of music. You yeah, know? I yeah. said, oh, well, I already have it available. Let me take it seriously, you know? Go and on. that's the magic of Victor is that he takes things that I would have thought was a mistake and said, no, I'm going to, you know, that's his personality. You know? Yeah, he's yeah. like, you know what? I'm going to use that. I'm going to make music out of that. So, uh, and like I said, luckily, I already had it there. You know, I was always using it just to make the drummer laugh. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And so then I started, like, focusing on it, man, and, and developing it. You know? How did you do, like, what was your approach to practicing something like that? I don't know, man. It's just a guitar pick. 
yeah, yeah. It's just yeah. um, so like literally just like playing lines with it. Yeah, yeah and you got to get your slurring together. You know what I mean? You have to go. Uh, right, right now. It doesn't even sound good. Yeah. Right, so uh, when to slur, like guitarist, like Wes Montgomery only played with his thumb. So yeah, he, he's, yeah, he's always going, yeah. You know, you have to figure yeah. out when to articulate and when to not. Yeah, you play, you, like, you played Teen Town though. I'm just gonna call it out because the first time I heard that, it freaking knocked me on my back. Because <laughs> at the time, I was like, you know, uh, maybe 19. I picked up the bass really late. I picked it when I was 18 and I'm like, at home, you know, going, you know, you know, trying to get that all down and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And then this dude came into work and he was like, oh, I've checked out this. Mm -hmm. And he put on that record. I was like, damn you, Marcus. I was like, I'm just trying to play it fingerstyle. And now you're slapping it. You ruined my day. Well, you know, it like, was, look, oh man, it was so, so hard to do with slap, right? How long did it take? Like, what was your, yeah. No, I learned it fingerstyle like everybody. Yeah. But at that point, man, I had been playing like this in so many different situations that it, it was actually more natural. And plus it was on a David Sanborn TV show. We had a show called Night Music. That was a music, yeah, variety, yeah, yeah. A music variety show. And our guest was Eddie Palmieri. And we figured, what are we gonna do as an encore, like as a credits role? And uh, somebody said Teen Town, you know, but Eddie had that uh, electric, Acoustic piano, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boom, 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 and he's playing strong, man, and the thing is way high. And that, that wasn't gonna do it, man. I had to come up with some power, you know what I mean? I said, okay, that's gonna work, you know? But I knew Teen Town very well, you yeah. know? So it was just about, you know, um, figuring out how to, to get it to work, you know? And, um, and maybe I had played it fooling around when I was practicing, you know? Yeah. I don't remember doing that, but I probably did. But the thing was that we got all these notes written into the TV show. What the hell was that? You know what I mean? Really? Yeah, all these bass players wanted to know, you know, how, you know, how to do it. And then there was all this controversy about, you know, it shouldn't be done like that, which was hilarious <laughs> to me. You know, it shouldn't be, no, no, you know, I'm laughing. I'm going, okay, I'm putting this on my record just because mainly it'll piss Jocko off. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> um, it was 91, you know, he had just passed, but he and I had a great relationship, you know, and he was, yeah, always, yeah. He was always busting my, my balls, you know, about, about stuff, you know. Uh, you know, Marcus, you think you're hot stuff, you know? I said, man, I'm trying to be like you. Why are you on my case, you know? Was he older than you? Or yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was like, you know, uh, let's see. I think he passed when he was 33, and I was probably about 25, 26. So that was a difference, but Got that's it. a big okay. difference. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah, He's yeah. a generation before me, yeah, you know? Yeah. And so um, he was just, he opened me up, man, when I first heard his records because he was a composer. And I don't mm. think most bass players realize the reason they fail as artists is because if you're not writing, if you don't know how to write for, for your instrument, if you just make a song and then you figure you're going to be, you're going to put your bass on top of the song, like playing the melody, like you're a singer or a sax player, 
it's not gonna work, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, it, yeah. I mean, you know who? Stanley Clark knows how to write for his instrument, right? He doesn't, he doesn't write melodies where you go. No, he goes. That sounds great on the bass guitar. Yeah, That's music yeah, for a yeah. bass guitar. That's not yeah. music for a horn where you're just kind of, you know, playing at an octave lower, sounding like a heavy-handed guitar player. No. He knew he had a, a relationship with his instrument. Mm. He knew what sounded good. You didn't hear Jocko playing in the upper register all day. He plays the... Wow. You know, he could he'd get yeah, a major seventh yeah, to sound yeah, clear on the yeah. bass. composition <laughs> right yeah that's somebody who knows their instrument and knows what sounds beautiful and meaningful and unique on their instrument you yeah, know? yeah a lot of bass players now they're playing but they're playing basically um they're not celebrating what's unique about the bass mm, guitar yeah right? that's really interesting actually yeah and so you're at a disadvantage because you're doing stuff that a guitar player can do falling out of bed you're working hard to do this thing and some, some people are doing um, a really good job at it, but there's nothing like the revolution that happened mm. when Stanley Clark came out with that, or School Days. That was you incredible, know I mean? wasn't it? Yeah. Or when Jocko came out, because it's, it's just it's stuff that people heard before, it's just on a different instrument. You know? Yeah. What, what was your relationship with Jocko like? Because you're obviously like both living in and around New York and stuff, working. Like I'm assuming like you're obviously doing more sessions. Was Jocko really involved in that scene or not? Jocko was in Weather Report. He and Joe Zavano had a love-hate relationship, <laughs> yeah. as you can imagine, because Joe's yeah. very strong personality, so is Jocko. Um, apparently, they had a blow-up, and Jocko quit the band. Michael Urbaniak, who's a Polish violinist, a fusion guy, who had a good relationship with Joe Zavano, he said, uh, Jocko's not in the band, call this kid Marcus. You know, like I'm 18, 17, 18 years old. And so Michael calls me, stay by your phone. Zavano's gonna call you to play in Weather Report. I oh, man, you must be out of your mind. I'm not, I'm not replacing Jocko and Weather Report. That's a beat down getting ready to happen. You know what I mean? Well, I'm gonna come in there and play like. <laughs> right. And man, he was like, right. So I just stayed away from my phone. Cause there was no, there was no cell phones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was no, yeah, no yeah. answering, no nothing. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's the 70s, man. So I just said, no, nah, man. I, I'm not ready for that. And uh, Chaco and Zavanil eventually, you know, kind of got back together. Yeah. And Zavanil invited me to come see them at the Beacon Theater in New York. Oh, fantastic. So I got a ticket, you know, like invited by them, you know. So I'm yeah. sitting there just watching Chaco and just going, wow, man, it's incredible. So I go backstage after, right? You know, I'd like sneak backstage during their last song. So they're coming down and Chaco comes down the stairs. And I go, hey, man, my name's Marcus. Goes, oh, you're the little black kid who plays like me, right? <laughs> no! Right? Um, anyway, uh, I thought about it a long time now. You know, at first I just thought, oh, no, please don't tell me he's like that. But yeah. I'm sure Zavano, when they were fighting, said, I don't need your ass. 
there's a little black kid who plays like you in New York that I can call. You know what I mean? That sounds more realistic. Yeah, so Jacqueline yeah, was just yeah. repeating what Zavanul had said to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, what I yeah. think really happened. Anyway, um, the next time uh, I'm playing with Roberta Flack, you know, Luther and I are Roberta's band and we're in a hotel in, in L.A. And the phone rings in my hotel room. Marcus Miller, I said, yeah, it's Jaco Pastorius. I'm in 265. Come up here and get your lesson. <laughs> I'm like, this dude, man, is so arrogant, you know. But I said that as I'm going to 265. I'm going to get my lesson. I'm going to get my lesson, you yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. And he was there with his wife, man, a lovely lady, man. And he said, this is what I'm working on now. He said, he said, it gets all your fingers working, you know, it's hotel, hotel yeah. pattern, you know what I mean? And then he plays some other stuff. And I, he said, okay, here, now you play for me. And I was like, at that time, man, I was chocoed out. You know what I mean? Yeah. And at that point, I said, I feel really stupid playing Jocko stuff to Jocko. Right? Got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I went. <laughs> and his wife was like. <laughs> 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 and he takes the bases. I can do that. I just don't. You know what I mean? <laughs> and I said, well, good. <laughs> leave, leave something for me to do, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was just, uh, I was, it was like false bravado on my part because, you know, you, you realize, man, if you're in the heavyweight, man, you could just sit there and just take, get beat up. <laughs> or you at least get a couple of swings in before you get beat up, you know what yeah, I mean? Because yeah, we were still yeah. you know, relatively young men, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah, so there's that whole yeah. thing, you know? But uh, we became very close. You know what I mean? And uh, after his weather report run, he moved to New York. And at that time I was doing, I was playing with Miles, but I was also, when I wasn't on the road with Miles, I was doing little club gigs, you know, the trio, great piano player named Kenny Kirkland. Yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. And Lenny yeah. White, and we just played, you know, it's, it's an out of the way place called the 55 Grand. It was on Grand Street and that was the address of it. Yeah. Anyway, you know, I'd be doing my little gigs and Jocko would just show up, wouldn't ask, just jump on the stage, plug in my amp, turn all the knobs up to 10. <laughs> I do what he wants. And I was like, come on, let's go. So we played um um we played Continuum together. Yeah. yeah. And on the on the Jocko recording of Continuum, he double tracked it. That's why it sounds the way it does. If you listen uh. to Jocko Pastorius's Continuum, he played it once on the fretless, played it again on the fretless, and that's why you get that beautiful chorus. It's yeah, just natural chorus, yeah. you know what I mean? So we played it together and it sounded just like that, man. And I, I went home on a on a cloud, you know. But, you know, he would um he would give me little digs, you know. Marcus, you think you're good because you can improvise. I said, man, I'm just trying to, trying to be like you, man. Why are you, you know? Yeah. But it's a, it's an honor, man, when a guy feels like he has to put you down a little bit, you know. I was yeah, like, yeah, 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 man. Jack would just insulted me, yeah, yeah you yeah. know. <laughs> and he, was, but it, it was, it, it was all love, you know what I mean? It was just That's like what I mean, yeah. how we, how we relate, yeah, yeah, exactly. Because you know, when when they'd ask him about bass plays that he respected, he said, yeah, Marcus Miller, you know. It's, it's beautiful, you know what I mean. So, yeah. and he knew what I what I felt about him. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean. Same with Stanley Clark, man. I mean, Stanley wasn't as rough with me as Jocko because Stanley knew he was Stanley. <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. he didn't have to like do any uh, of that stuff. But um, the first time that I I played with Lenny White, uh, we were on the same bill with Stanley Clark. Mm. Stanley was uh, the headliner. Lenny was opening, so Stanley was just standing right beside the stage, just like. And he's probably six four, six five. He looked like he was seven five. <laughs> you know, over there. You know what I mean? Yeah, slightly intimidating, right? Slightly, yeah. <laughs> but man, it was cool, man, because you know, I don't think I played very well that that night. But then it felt like stupid. Why? 
why am I like nervous about about playing? You yeah, know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. I got over that real quick. You know what I mean? Like, no man, I'm just gonna do what I do and let the chips fall, you know? Mm -hmm. And these are the kind of uh, lessons you have to do, man. So if I'm um if I'm at a gig and there's a band playing before us, I purposely stand on the side of the stage. You know what I mean? Maybe yeah. get a carton so I can look as, as tall <laughs> as Stanley. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, and you know, sometimes the guy goes, man, I was so nervous. I said, good. You know yeah. what I mean? Get over that. You know what I mean? Get over that, man. We got to, you got work to do. You yeah. know what I mean? And yeah. what I think about you is not that important, you know? Fantastic. Do your thing. Fantastic. I cannot let you go without... Two, two things. First of all, I want you to talk about the sires and like what it's been like, the experience of, you know, developing these instruments that you're playing now, uh, which we were talking earlier. And I said, is that really the when they came out, it was the first like sort of like professional level instrument that wasn't crazy expensive. Mm -hmm. And then I'll save my last question to, uh, to after that. But yeah, what tell us about the sires. Well, um, a friend of mine, Andre Berry, who's a great bass player who lives in L.A., said, you know, these Korean guys want to talk to you, you know. And I said, man, just tell them I I've been with Fender, you know, because Fender was making a Marcus Miller model yeah. maybe for like 18 years at that point, you know. He said, well, you know, they're, they're, they're really um, wanting to meet you anyway. They know that you're with Fender. I said, well, look, I'll be in Japan um, in three months. And they're in Seoul, Korea. It's not such a long flight. Mm -hmm. So if they really want to meet, let's do that. And we met and they told me, you know, that they are, uh, been, they've been working. They're really well known as guitar makers in Korea. Yeah, and they are making this bass. That's uh, he, he said it's at least as as good quality as the Fender one that you have out now. Yeah, but we're gonna sell it for three hundred and fifty dollars. Now this time, you know, bass is going for twelve hundred dollars. You know, I mean yeah. quality basses. And I said, uh, okay, well, what's the catch? You know, and they said, well, we we own our own factory so there's no middleman and etc they had a bunch of reasons why they could do it for this price the main reason probably was to capture market share you know yeah, what i mean yeah, just yeah. like when lexus came out uh you know 30 years ago they sold their lexuses for way less than a mercedes or a bmw yeah, yeah, yeah. just to get people to come over yeah. check it out eventually the prices started going yeah, up, yeah you know but um i said wow well this you know let me see the base and they showed me the base and i said man this is this is kind of nice. I'm looking for the, the problem, you know, check the tuning, you know, I'm <laughs> yeah, sure the yeah, tuning yeah. is messed up, you know, but no, it was pretty consistent. This stuff wasn't so expensive, you yeah. know, like the hardware, you know, they, they didn't spend a lot of money on that, but yeah. in terms of the base, and I called my man Harold, who we worked together on stuff like this and said, man, I'm gonna send you this base. Tell me what you think. He said, man, this thing is sweet. You know, yeah, yeah. I took it in the studio and recorded it because for me, that's when it all comes out, you know yeah, what I mean? It, because otherwise you're, um, you're hearing your amp do a lot of the work or, yeah. you know, you're hearing the, the ambience of a music store, you know what I mean? But I know what a bass is supposed to sound like on a recording, so mm -hmm. I took it and recorded And that, it was clear, it was the, 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 the action, the fret buzz and all that stuff. And um, we said, you know what, this might be something, you know? Yeah. And the way they pitched it to me, they said, look, it's for students. It's gonna it's gonna cost three hundred fifty dollars. Yeah, parents can buy this for their kids without taking out a mortgage. And you know, if the kid decides he'd rather play PlayStation rather than play the bass, it's still, you know, they they didn't make such a huge investment. Yeah. And you know, look, there are other bases that cost less, but this is not a base that if your kid is serious, he's gonna have to buy another one in a year or two. You know, yeah, you can yeah, stay yeah, with this. Yeah. So it was it sounded interesting. So 
went to Fender and said, hey, man, you know, thinking about doing the student model. And, uh, you know, I had mentioned it to Fender a few times. But, you know, Fender has so much going on. You know what I mean? They love the idea, but we never quite got around to it. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, I said, well, I'm thinking about doing this. They said, yeah, man, you know, it's just a student model. Go on, do it. We won't even change your contract. You know what I mean? Because it's just going to be under the radar. Hmm. They called me a few months later and said, man, you have no idea how big this thing is going to be. Yeah, yeah. And you're going to have to decide whether to stay with Fender or um, go with these new guys. And I was like, I've been with Fender for 18 years. You know yeah. what I mean? Everybody. Was that tough? that conversation well, it, it wasn't tough you know what I mean because um, you know for me I was with Fender but I played <laughs> my Fender from 1977 yeah yeah. And, and, I, and I had to talk with the Sire guys I said look man if this is something that you want me to play exclusively I can't do that because I've got too much history with mm -hmm. this other bass said, no mm -hmm. man you know uh, you play it as, as it works for you you know and I said okay anyway um, the first year it came out little difficult to get on distribution you know people weren't sure about it Toman was sure Toman got on yeah early uh you know in the UK and in Europe but um other places was difficult but the word got out man and next thing I know man it exploded I'm yeah. getting calls from everybody I'm getting calls from people who don't play the bass I bought your bass <laughs> <laughs> you're a singer yeah but I you know I figured I need to have a bass I yeah. want to have yours yeah. you know what yeah. I mean and uh it just went like gangbusters because the price and the quality, the combination of the price and the quality. People say, hey, man, there's a lot better bass out there. Probably, but, if, you know, 350 bucks, 400 bucks. I know a bunch you know? of pro players that play. Yeah, and if yeah. you play five string and you say, well, I should really have a four string, you know what I mean? This is, you know, I can yeah. have one. I can have a quality one. I don't have to worry about it, you know, not being in tune. And what Sire does, man, there's no advertising. It's crazy that right? all the advertising <laughs> is word of mouth yeah you know yeah. and so talk to kyle who we were talking about earlier who's, yeah. who's the um shout the, to kyle the, yeah hey, kyle. <laughs> present guy the, the the you know the top guy at, at sire whose vision it is and he says rather than spend money on advertising there's a machine that they put on bass necks that goes like this it's a leveler hmm. and it and it levels the frets it kind of shaves them to make sure they're even and it goes like this Right. And every pass costs money. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. it's a certain amount of money to do a pass. So if you do two passes, it's a certain amount of money. Right. If you do three, okay. yeah. a certain amount of money. But the more passes you do, the more you can be sure that it's going to come out of the box in good shape. Playing right. right. Play. Yeah. This is what Kyle does. Mm. This is the advertising money right here. Yeah. He, yeah. He doubles back on every fret. Got it. You know what I mean? So one, by the time he gets here, that's already like three passes. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then he does it again, he does it again. So what I'm saying is that he figured my best advertisement is God saying, man, I picked this thing up and it played right out it of the box. Right, yeah, yeah. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that every bass is going to be uh, perfect. You know, I'm sure there's people, man, my bass was, but man, f for the majority of plays. Yeah, the consistency. I just got a call there, from yeah. the man, I put, pulled that sucker out of the case and did a gig that night. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. it's very cool. And they, you know, they started um, coming out with all these different models. You know, there's an M series, which is a little smaller and, uh, you know, might be more appropriate for different styles of music. Yeah. And there's a P bass one and, you know, they're going kind of nuts now. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah. But it's all the same mentality. So it's been a really cool experience. Amazing. And the last question I wanted to ask you is, where can people find you? If they want to come and harass you online, where are they going to find you? Oh, yeah. Just, um, 
Instagram, The Real Marcus Miller. Uh, still on Facebook. I think it's called Marcus Miller Band. Yeah. And um, I think those are the two main ones. Um, yeah, those are two main ones. Um, I got to keep my email box clear. Clear. So. <laughs> yeah, we do not want to put your email on this video. Trust me. <laughs> trust me. Anyway, Mark, it's, it's been an absolute honor of mine to uh, to me, honestly. Right, Huge thanks, fan. Right. Uh, thanks, everybody, for watching. Um, hopefully, your mind's been blown like mine has. Um, and we will see you in the next video. Take it easy. See you in a bit. Bye.